HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode has been brought to you by Magnus Design. This week on Meet and 3, we bring you stories about the coldest, darkest season. We start in a California vineyard. It's cold, but it's wet, and things are still alive. There's a lot of life in this soil. We explore two frontiers of cocktail culture, luxury ice and the rise of non-alcoholic drinks. The rocks traditionally becomes 25% of your drink's volume, and as such, it imparts smells and tastes. And we investigate the risks facing New York City delivery workers during the harsh winter. In the wintertime, after two hours of biking, it's quite easy, actually, for the bikes to sting upside down or slips or slide. Tune in to this week's episode of Meat and 3, that's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E, for some food for thought to sustain you through the dead of winter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Paul Friedman is a professor at Yale specializing in medieval social history, the history of Catalonia, comparative studies of the peasantry, trade and luxury products, and the history of cuisine. We'll be discussing his research on the ever-elusive definition and history of quote-unquote American cuisine in the context of 10 Restaurants That Changed America, his most recent book, and his newest to be released this October. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you. It's great to be here. So you are very careful in explaining that your book is not about the 10 best restaurants in America, but the 10 most influential. So can you explain this key difference? Well, I was interested in uh, restaurants and American history and society, not the judgment as to which are the 10 best restaurants that have ever been produced in America. So an example would be my Italian restaurant is Mama Leone's, which was in New York, very popular despised by a lot of New Yorkers because it was kind of a tourist place. Well, not kind of. It was a tourist place. It served 2,000, 3,000 people a day. But it was very influential. It formed a lot of what Americans think Italian cuisine is. And it seemed to me you couldn't write a book about American restaurants without including an Italian one. Mm-hmm. So in identifying these 10 restaurants, you also talk about their, uh, what you call particular vision. So can you explain what that is too? They vary a lot. Some of them were elegant restaurants like Delmonico's, the earliest restaurant, really successful restaurant in the United States, in New York, or Antoine's in New Orleans, or for that matter, Chez Panisse in Berkeley. 
Others had a mission to appeal to a larger public. Mama Leone's I mentioned, but also Howard Johnson, a restaurant that chain that had a thousand branches at its height in the early 1960s from coast to coast. So we'll get into all of that later, but what especially stuck out to me is you selected Howard Johnson's over McDonald's. So can you explain that? Well, several things. Howard Johnson's is the parent to McDonald's. Okay. It pioneered the roadside restaurant, the franchise restaurant, the notion of immediately recognizable, you know what to expect, and it will reliably be delivered to you. It pioneered the notion of the family-friendly restaurant, a place where you could bring kids, so that what McDonald's is is a stripped-down Howard Johnson, so stripped down that it's questionable whether it really is a restaurant. It has relatively few items. Most people don't sit down there. They don't have waiters. It's really kind of a a different experience. But it seemed to me that it was like the Oedipus myth. McDonald's parent was Howard Johnson's, and (laughs) McDonald's killed its parent. (laughs) Okay, so are you familiar with Alan Ward's work? I'm not. Okay, so he's um, he's a sociologist that studies the sociocultural implications of uh, dining out or eating at a restaurant, and he has a very similar argument that um, culinary fashions are determined not just by the upper classes, but by the enthusiasms of less pretentious people for modest and ubiquitous places to eat. So, like this Howard Johnson example, and so a recurring show on this, a recurring question on this show is who truly sets the food trends? Is it the people working in the industry, or is it the people with the dollars? What do you think? Well, that's a that's a certainly one of the most important questions. I guess I'd say there's an up and down uh, logic in which certainly. Trends like French food, beef Wellington, uh, aspic trickle down into you know things like Jello or popular foods. On the other hand, there's a lot of trickle up or appropriation. So pizza begins as a poor person's food, then becomes a kind of generalized, available, inexpensive food, and then becomes a gourmet item. Uh, burgers also become appropriated so that you can have uh, $20 burgers or $50 burgers. The well-off tastemakers, whoever they are, tend to control it. That is, they appropriate certain things like barbecued ribs and maybe leave hog's maw uh, out of the equation from southern food. But you can see that in places outside the South and the West, barbecue of that sort didn't exist in New York City until really very recently. At least it didn't exist outside of African-American neighborhoods. And so it was unknown to uh, a lot of New Yorkers who considered themselves sophisticated. The related question, I guess, that you're interested in is how much do restaurants determine what we eat. And I would say they're more responsive than determining. They may determine it, but that's because they've tried a number of ideas and found some that work. Mm-hmm. So it's easy to see why or how fancy dishes trickle down, but what causes them to trickle upwards? Authenticity. Mm-hmm. Uh, we live in a world in which rich people, or let's say affluent people, 
merely well-off people, not only want to be well-off, but they sometimes or somehow want to be in contact with what they imagine is a more vital, lusty, interesting tradition. What that is could be peasants. Uh, in my youth, a novel called Zorba the Greek was very popular. Uh, Anthony Quinn was in the movie version of it. And this notion that a kind of repressed middle-class Englishman meets a life-affirming Greek guy, Zorba, who teaches him how to live. That notion that even poor people, or maybe because they're poor, have some kind of vitality, authenticity, so that rustic becomes a kind of adjective of praise in menus or in restaurant advertising, so that you, you like to be a barbecue pit master in your imagination, even though actually you have a job in finance that pays better than that. Yeah, I think that's pretty analogous to the um, person working in finance who claims to know the best hole-in-the-wall taco restaurant in Queens. And so why, why is that such a splashy badge of honor? It's because you're an explorer and people want to be explorers. I, I use finance just as an example. I would include my own profession of college teaching as one that, although interesting and with many advantages, does not involve you in the most immediate dynamic experiences or Dionysian experiences in life. So that exploring, knowing things that other people don't know, rubbing shoulders with people who are different from you in slightly enviable but nevertheless distinct ways, I think that really much, very much determines the kind of spirit that you're talking about. Okay, so let's go back um, to what you were saying about how restaurants respond are very responsive more than determinate, and so what exactly are they responding to? They're responding to an idea of food depending on the historical era. In the 19th century, elegant restaurants would want to create a French kind of cuisine and a French atmosphere. They'd want to create a certain kind of service or uh, pleasant ambiance. And they would look to models for this. The models might be in France. I think actually a lot of the models ended up being in London. So French food is interpreted by Britain. Or American successes like Delmonico's would be imitated. In later times, there are many more different models. There are models based on profit, also models based on actual cuisine. So the fact that many Chinese restaurants have sushi is not a cuisine decision, it's a profit decision because sushi is more profitable than Chinese dishes. Patrons who are neither Chinese nor Japanese are willing to pay more for sushi than for, uh, say, beef with broccoli. Mm -hmm. Similarly, uh, restaurants, mm, Italian restaurants are money makers because pasta is very cheap and people can are willing to pay, say, $20 for something whose ingredients are extremely cheap. Whereas if you're actually going to order, uh, offer steak or meat, uh, that's expensive. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so you identify three categories, back to the book, um, the tourist destination, the inexpensive middle-class change, and the quote-unquote bohemian restaurant that offers um, other countries food. So can you talk about each category and what helped you identify these three? Yes, these are all three kinds of middle-class restaurants. So out of this equation are the very fancy restaurants, which appeal to a wealthy or would-be wealthy clientele, or restaurants that are designed for uh, the actual immigrant community, or restaurants that are merely local. So one of the big revolutions in American restaurant history that took place in the late 19th century was the creation of a middle-class level restaurant. And so the one that most interested me in this category is the Bohemians, not so much as a restaurant, but as a customer category. Bohemians are the ancestors of hipsters and yuppies, in my mind. They're relatively young, artsy. They're not necessarily artists, but they're interested in art or music or something other than just making money. They have enough money to be able to spend it at things like restaurants. They're also fairly unattached to the things that make you owe money or not go out very much, like children, houses, property. They're urban people with some discretionary income and a desire to be sophisticated. So these are the first people who go to Chinese restaurants other than people who are Chinese. Mm -hmm. They're the first people who go to Italian restaurants. They are the patrons of what later come to be called ethnic restaurants. They're people who look at restaurant reviews once you start having restaurant reviews. They're the people who then patronize what's new, what's interesting, or what's inexpensive but new and interesting and really set the pattern for the most successful aspects of middle-class restaurants in the United States. After the Bohemians have come, then comes the regular middle class, just as after the artists settle Soho or Williamsburg, then comes a wave of people with jobs that have nothing to do with art. Yeah, I was talking about this with a friend the other day. We were talking about how Williamsburg um, still kind of looks very artsy, but then there's an Apple store next to a Sephora, and it's a Whole Foods, and it's just completely changed. Um, So despite the Bohemian category that you mentioned, half of the restaurants you mentioned um, in the book are either French, aspired to be French, or reacted against French domination. So can you speak to France's power or influence over our culinary history? I think that one of the most dramatic events of the last 50 years is the eclipse of French hegemony worldwide. It's not that French food is not esteemed. It's not that France doesn't produce wonderful restaurants anymore. It's just that France, until sometime in the 1980s, beginning in the 70s maybe, France ceased to be the place that defined what is haute cuisine and what is not, what is international gourmet cuisine. And that is a domination that had started at least as far back as the 18th century. So the Delmonico's, my first restaurant, described itself as a French restaurant right from the start. It had a lot of American specialties, American dishes, but its menu was in French for much of its history, and the 
manner of preparation, the description of the sauces, the order of service was French. Antoine's in New Orleans, although now describing itself as haute creole, for most of its history described itself as French, and its menu was in French, and only in the 1990s does it start to have translation into English. Chez Panisse, the last of my restaurants, was uh, started as a French restaurant, as, as its name implies, and very authentic middle-class French auberge style, and then evolved into something else, the, really the founder of what would become to be called New American. Le Pavillon is the most French of all these restaurants. It was a restaurant in New York from 1941 until the 1970s that was about as French as it could get. Its owner, Henri Soulet, was from France, and unlike Delmonico's or Antoine's, it wasn't sort of edging over into American kinds of dishes. And then finally, The Four Seasons was as elegant as Le Pavillon, presented a level of service that rivaled that of the city's most expensive restaurants, all of which were French, but it was deliberately not French. It had seasonal American ingredients, it had a lot of international kinds of food, but it set out for what at the time was a quixotic mission to try to create a world-class cuisine that was not French. So what circumstances or events allowed for this eclipse? It's partly a crisis of confidence in France itself. The 1970s saw a shift towards what was called Nouvelle Cuisine and away from French traditions and absorbing some of the Japanese style of beautiful presentation of small plates uh, or at least small <coughs> amounts of food on large plates, a kind of light aesthetic instead of using a whole lot of butter and sauces, uh, a much uh, less fattening kind of cuisine. And though that didn't really succeed in France in the long term, it opened the way for other places to experiment, to make their food more Japanese in style and in substance. And some of it was simply globalization, the same globalization that means that American cars don't dominate the world or that there are multiple centers of authority for many things that were formerly dominated by one particular place. Mm -hmm. So do you know what the current state of French cuisine looks or feels like? Is there still that same crisis in identity? I think there's a crisis of identity in France generally, and that that includes cuisine. My own experience in France, which I don't think is all that extensive, is that the food is delightful, uh, as delightful as ever, but that it is more eclectic and that there is an ambivalence about the fact that many of the restaurants aren't French. When I was 10 years old in 1960, I went with my parents to France and to a number of other countries, and you couldn't get a non-French meal. Uh, it, it, you couldn't even get a sandwich for lunch, it, so it seemed. It seemed as if every place served, of course, French food or so regional food. So not even just in France, in all the countries? You... Particularly in France, mm -hmm. but all, yes, that's right, in Italy as well. In 1965, we went again, and by that time, at least you had snacks, you had sandwiches, 
And in Italy, you actually had pizza outside of Naples. Mm. I was in uh, Poitiers, France, last summer, and there was a wonderful sign directing you to a place that served what the blackboard said, real French cuisine, panini, pizzas, and burritos. <laughs> that's that's a, a big difference in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. I think that's funny, though, because I feel like um, in understanding or trying to define American cuisine, um, that's you hear very similar things, right? Pizza, hot dogs, burgers. So it's not a crisis that's really unique to our nation. But for us, it's not a crisis. It's the way we've always been. Mm-hmm. And that's really the theme of my book that will come out in October that you were referring to, which is called American Cuisine, How It Got to Be This Way. Mm -hmm. And one of the things about Americans since the Bohemians, since this mix-it-up sense that begins around 1880, is the sort of thing where you say, I don't want Thai food tonight because I had Thai food yesterday. In most of the world until recently, that didn't really make any sense. You wanted to have food within the same tradition, not the same dishes necessarily. So the, uh, the thing that in other countries like Italy, uh, where they are trying to defend their cuisine as they imagine it, or in France where they've kind of given up but still, as that sign implies, are ironic about the fact that French cuisine now is not as narrowly defined as before. For them, it's a kind of crisis, or at least it's both an opportunity and a crisis. In the United States, it's really not perceived as that. And in fact, what's happened in the United States in recent years is we've brought back certain dishes or made them much better than they used to be. Things like barbecue or South Carolina gold rice or Creole food or Midwestern breeds of um, uh, of animals, or particularly in the South, changes in trying to restore traditions. Do you ever think it's a matter of just the nation not being as older or not having such a long history as other nations? I don't, because in a sense, Italy is not a nation until the 1860s, even if there's an Italian language and a sense of geography. And by now, the United States as a political entity is not all that young a nation. I think it has to do not only with immigration, because there are plenty of other countries that have large immigrant populations, but of the attitude of the elites, which while there's a lot to be said against American elites and their treatment of other people, they've tended to appropriate or accept a kind of culinary mix. And so that, I think, is uh, historical, even beyond the Bohemians. The sociologist Donna Gabaccia describes American dining patterns of even the colonial period as eating Creole. And by Creole, she means what I guess I referred to as mixing it up. Mm. So in foregrounding your selection of the 10 most influential, you also discuss American values and tastes. And um, what especially stuck out to me was our preference for choice over craft. And you talk about this case study of rice So can you share that with our listeners? Yes. rice was invented by an Armenian immigrant 
uh, and it combines rice and pasta in different flavors. And originally it came in one flavor, I think it was chicken. And then I remember the advertisements on television which advertised it as the San Francisco treat and had the sound of a cable car bell. It, it wasn't associated with San Francisco. It's just that the guy lived in California or some advertising genius thought of this. It came at that time, as I remember, in four fabulous flavors, and now it comes in dozens of flavors. The path to success is to offer a product that is convenient, as Rice-Roni is. It may taste great, but it's not a craft item. It's not something that requires skill to make. And it doesn't really taste like you went and got some heritage breed of rice and cooked it by hand. So that convenience and variety offset blandness, the blandness that comes from an essentially industrial product. Yeah, on the way here, I mentioned rice aroni to my boyfriend. He instantly knew the jingle, that San Francisco treat. And he, but then he followed that up with, um, I didn't know or I wouldn't understand why it's from San Francisco. So why, why the, um, what's the power of imbuing a product like this with such locality? Exactly. And what is, what is a, can you name a San Francisco item? It's not a place, it's like New York, it's famous for its restaurants, but not for its domestic cuisine, uh, Chopino, I guess, uh, Genoese immigrant fish stew is about all I can come up with. Sourdough bread, maybe. But San Francisco meant sophistication. Uh, I think the founder of Riceroni lived somewhere in Northern California. I don't think San Francisco, but maybe somewhere like Santa Rosa. But north of Calif- in Northern California, it's... It's, it's a San Francisco treat because it was on all the cable cars at one time. All the cable cars had a little rice advertisement, at least when I lived there in the 1970s. But nobody in San... I never had it. Nobody featured it. It was available in the stores just like it was in Chicago or Jacksonville, Florida. Yeah, I'm going to push on this a little bit more. There's a Whole Foods in downtown Brooklyn, and they have um, a pour-your-own-beer hall, and it's called Pour It Authority, after Port Authority. And another example is those Starbucks mugs that look the same in every city, but then they just change the name of the city. So what pushes us to consume these products when we are in different cities or we we feel like, um, I don't know, we're taking a piece of the city with us wherever we go? It's authenticity again. It's the sense that you are participating in something that chalks up some points to you as an interesting person. Uh, In the revision or the paperback version of the 10 restaurants that changed America, I discussed some of the 10 restaurants that I thought were changing America now rather than historical, more current. And one of them was Franklin Barbecue in Austin, Texas. And it was one of what could be many examples of a cult restaurant. A restaurant I define uh, as a cult restaurant is one where people not only Instagram their food, but Instagram themselves waiting in line. And even if there are other restaurants of the same category, 
other lobster roll places uh, in Cape Cod, you've got to be at the place that your friends will envy you for. You can't just say, you know, I decided that this barbecue place or this fried chicken place had too long a line. I didn't want to wait for two hours, so I went somewhere else. You lose your... What is it that you lose? That's really your question. Mm -hmm. You lose your sense of adventure, of accomplishment. Oh, you know, I didn't climb Everest. I decided to climb a littler mountain. Mm -hmm. That's really the effect. Now, why that is, some of it is just artificial. I lived in Nashville, Tennessee for many years. And now, Nashville hot chicken is this item. It's something that people feel they can't leave Nashville without trying or People will go to Nashville deliberately as a gastronomic destination and include that in their checklist. But when I lived there, it was an item at one particular place. It wasn't widely imitated. It was really, really spicy. And it it was kind of like just there. Now it's, it's a cult. It's a gastronomic theme. How does that happen? Mm -hmm. That's what I'm interested in. Yeah, so um, I ask all my guests about this because I'm simultaneously partaking in but also terrified of the power of Instagram on food and the way we consume. And so do you think this is an exciting uh, prospect for our food future or is it kind of hindering in a way? It's exciting. And initially I thought I'm never going to photograph my food. What a barbarism. (laughs) And it's... uh, it interrupts the calm and tranquility that a meal should have. And it prevents you from concentrating on what's in front of you. And I certainly have seen and have then done it myself. The food is getting cold and you're fiddling with your phone because you, some, there's something wrong with your Twitter or your Instagram feed. So having said all of that, nevertheless, I do it. And I like to look at other people's things. It also helps you identify food Uh, at places. It creates a kind of community. It has a lot of the same advantages and disadvantages of the internet as a whole. It drives you crazy, but it puts you in connection with a lot of other things that you wouldn't have been before. Mm -hmm. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We're going to talk about the 10 most influential restaurants now after the break. This episode is presented by Magnus Design. Swedish designer Magnus Lundström has taken his extensive experience designing best-selling products for companies including Electrolux and IKEA and created his own line of kitchenware, combining his engineering skills and artistry to produce timeless products that reflect environmental awareness and respect for natural materials. Crafted for everyday use, his mortar and pestles, cutting boards, and spice mills have been repeatedly selected as best in the represented categories for years. You can see Magnus's products online at magnuslundstrom.com. That's Magnus, L-U-N-D-S-T-R-O-M dot com. Or visit his partner's store, Area Home, located below Union Square on 11th Street. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Jimmy Carboni, and I'm the host of Beer Sessions Radio here on HRN. My show is an audio ale salon celebrating the world of craft beer, cider, food, and more. Through discussions with industry insiders and knowledgeable beer fans, 
My friends and I explore every aspect of the brewer's craft, from grains to pint glass and tasting to toasting. You can find Beer Sessions Radio wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. This is meant to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. Um, So we were about to talk about the 10 most influential restaurants now. But before we get into that, I kind of wanted to return to um, what you called the bohemian trend and what has led to our fascination with and maybe obsession with um, quote unquote ethnic restaurants. And so how do ethnic quote unquote restaurants kind of fly in the face of American Protestant values and tastes? American Protestant values and tastes is kind of a hard category to define, but um, the international or foreign restaurants defied what were the nutritionists' goals and instructions of the late 19th century. So nutritionists at that time thought that meat, milk, and very simple food, things like oatmeal, were good for you, and that Things like olive oil were ridiculous luxuries. Vegetables had no nutritional value. Spices made you lustful or at least uh, the minimum prone to alcoholism. And so immigrant food was mistrusted when it wasn't denounced by not so much the Protestant establishment, but its descendant, the nutritional establishment. Bohemians liked the variety the verve and joyfulness of Italian food and of Chinese food. And this in contrast to either the elegance and intimidation of French restaurants on the one hand and the kind of taverns, working class, not very uh, nice atmosphere kind of places on the lower end. Mm-hmm. So building on the olive oil being too luxurious, you also write that um, immigrant food seems like it's too complicated or it takes too much time, but now it's very much in vogue to fuss over our food and cook elaborate recipes from the New York Times cooking app. So what allowed for this change? Well, I wonder if it's changed. One of the things that was disturbing about immigrants to the nutritional establishment and the establishment generally was the amount of time spent cooking. That once you become an American, you stop cooking all day. You don't, you don't start in the morning making dishes that you're going to serve hours later. Lunch should just be a slice of prepackaged bologna and some white bread, maybe slathered with mustard, and get on with it. You know, go to your job. Produce something. The people who do fuss about cooking, fuss a lot now, but they're a minority. We spend much more time dining out and much more money dining out per capita and as a nation than at any time in the past. So the amount of cooking that's being done is has been in decline for 50 years and more. So speaking of, which are the 10 most influential uh, restaurants that you've identified now? Well, um, I'm not sure I can remember all of oh, them fine. right Just offhand. The ones that, the ones that st- stand out to me in my memory. So Husk in South Carolina, which now has branches in, I believe, Savannah, Greenville, and Nashville, as a restaurant emphasizing its region, the South, and its heritage. 
but it's heritage defined also by breeds and types and wild food that people had forgotten. So things like pawpaws or poke salad, or I mentioned before the kind of rice that is tastier, a little more difficult to grow or work with that they have revived. Uh, another one is Mama Fuku. Doesn't need a whole lot of introduction to listeners, I'm sure. It, it uh, is another example of mixing cuisines up, Korean, but other stuff, creativity, uh, experimentation, spices, and even things like decor, uh, the kind of radically simplified decor that David Chang has introduced. Shake Shack, here an example of fast food or a fast food model, but with high quality ingredients and uh, notions of sustainability and community service. So paving the way for things like Chipotle or Sweet Green or uh, Junzi or other chains that want to have the best ingredients possible consistent with a relatively inexpensive and quick service model. 11 Madison Park, a leading American restaurant, a combination of ingredient-focused and insanely craft-focused. Blue Hill Stone Barns in New York, in Westchester County. Like Husk, tremendous emphasis on what kind of carrot is this? What breed of animal is this coming from? Less regional in its identity than, uh, than Husk. Dirt Candy, a restaurant in New York City which is a vegetarian but not exactly vegetarian, more vegetable forward. So the difference being that vegetarian connotes a kind of renunciation. I'm not going to eat meat. Vegetable forward is I can make vegetables as delicious as meat. And I think that's really a trend that is going to grow in the future. Then just the fact of change. Many restaurants change their menus constantly, and a number of them really have hitched their star to the notion of change. One of them is uh, in situ in the San Francisco Museum of Art that borrows dishes from restaurants around the world and changes its lineup of which dishes and which restaurants. But the one I chose was Next in, Sa in Chicago, a, a restaurant that goes, say, for four months with Sicilian food and then four months Northern Thai food, four months Paris 1903, and that kind of shifting and variety is, I think, a pattern that not everybody can imitate literally, but that inspires a lot of the creative instability of, of our times. Mm -hmm. So if we're going to go back, and you were talking about how restaurants are responding more than determining, are, is, um, what was it called, Next? Is Next responding um, to their own, I'm guessing it's like a very celeb chef culture, to their own chef's creative impulses or is it they expect their diners are going to be wanting the next best thing again and again? I guess I'd say at the outset I don't literally know but a good guess would be here is an example of a chef simply deciding to do something and the world following. The chef uh, Grant Atchitz is extremely well known and extremely focused and he does have a vision 
and is not someone I think of as reading market statistics or hiring tastemakers to tell them what the next thing is. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to the first one. You mentioned husk, um, which I think to the casual consumer going there for the first time, they might eat there and think, oh, this is very ethnic or this is very different and not necessarily American. So what is the danger of that? Well, it is very American. It's very approachable. One of the things that impresses me about Husk is that uh, unlike some restaurants where you might say, oh, this food is awesome, but kind of hard to get my mind around and not something not only that I would necessarily want in the future, but I'm not sure I could identify it in the future. It's very approachable. The ingredients are wonderful. Often, as with oysters or crab or beans, they're better than any you've had in a very long time or maybe ever. But they're not prepared in a way that they're trying to evoke from you wonder rather than enjoyment. Mm -hmm. And that distinction is important to me. Yeah, that's actually a common thread that I've noticed in the 10 that you've selected, Blue Hill, Dirt Candy, um, Momofuku, in which each presents dishes that you are maybe, or yeah, you've had before, or ingredients that you've had before, but they are suddenly the platonic ideal of anything you've ever had before. I'm a Platonist in the sense that what gives me pleasure is something that I always knew, but maybe only dimly. So that this this taco or this lobster American or this burger even is something that I glimpsed in the cave. And now that I've been unchained and let out of the cave to see the sun, I realize that the previous examples were all shadows and that this is the platonic ideal. Mm -hmm. And this, I feel like, has roots or origins in the kind of farm-to-table Alice Waters movement in the 70s. And so can you kind of trace that with me? Yes, because it goes against what I described before, the notion that variety distracts you from bland or just okay quality. From the food industry's point of view, it's very easy to deliver variety. It's very hard to deliver actual quality on a massive scale with a lot of chemical ingredients that are necessary to preserve or stabilize or texturize the product. Americans have been happy with that bargain generally for over a century, but beginning with Alice Waters in the 1970s and certainly shared by many other innovators, but most prominently with Alice Waters, the emphasis was on the primary ingredients that this may not come in many flavors, but this yogurt or this peach or this pork chop is wonderful and that its natural flavor is such that it grabs you in a way that merely a variety of sauces or a variety of distracting kind of toppings or rubs or methods of preparation does not. I think that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for joining me today, Paul. Thank you, Carl. It's been great to be with you.
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.